The desperation here intensifies every day. People know the Americans will leave soon, and quite likely leave them behind. U.S. Marines and British soldiers hold the line against a swell of terrified, pleading humanity. It's been one year since the United States departed Afghanistan and the Taliban took over. After two decades of war and occupation, the scenes on the ground were chaotic and heartbreaking. 47,000 Afghan civilians died during the last 20 years of conflict, and the U.S. lost more than 2,400 service members. But President Biden still insists it was the right time to end America's longest war. But what did the fall of Kabul mean for those forced to flee Afghanistan? And what does the international community owe to those who remained? We'll get into all that and more after the break. I'm Elise Labatt, in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. To have your questions answered on future topics, download the 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a message. We're reflecting on the one-year anniversary of the end of the war in Afghanistan. Joining us is Jane Ferguson. She's a correspondent for the PBS NewsHour and was one of the last broadcast journalists on the ground when Kabul fell. Jane, welcome to the show. Hi, Elise. Thanks for having me. Also with us is Joseph Azam. He's the board chairman of the Afghan American Foundation, a nonprofit advocacy group. Joseph, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having us, Lise. Jane, let's start with you. You were there on the day that Kabul fell. Take us back to that day and, and what you saw and, and what was going on. It was the most surreal turnaround because, of course, we all knew that the Taliban were on the march. Whenever I got off the plane that morning from Dubai, it was about 8 a.m. driving into Kabul. It seemed so completely normal. And yet the first news I got when I got off the plane was that Jalalabad had fallen. That meant Everywhere had fallen other than Kabul. And yet you still had street markets, busy traffic, people on bicycles. It, it looked normal. By 11 a.m., we were starting to he see tweets of people tweeting photographs of Taliban fighters walking into the outskirts of the city. By 2 p.m., we heard that Ashraf Ghani, the president of Afghanistan, and his, and his team had fled the country. And we ran up onto the rooftop of our hotel, and I remember looking down over the side, and suddenly the streets were empty. The green Hilux trucks that had, that had carried the special forces police that secured the central part of the city were open. The doors were open. They'd been abandoned. I'd never in my life, I've covered a lot of revolutions, wars, uh, various uh, uprisings and crises, but I'd never seen a state collapse before, and it just disappeared. Joseph, as an Afghan-American, what was it like to watch the events unfolding that day from from here in the U.S. and in the days that followed? It, it was incredibly challenging. And for a lot of us, it was um, it was a repeat of what we went through in the decades preceding, mm. especially for those of us who came to the U.S. as refugees. So it was heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking because uh, many of people within the community had served alongside U.S. forces, had been um, working with nonprofits in Afghanistan, had really invested from afar in the success of the country, right, in the success of the nascent democracy. And so really it was it was shattering. It was shattering to watch. What were you hearing from Afghans in Kabul that day and in the days after? In Kabul and, and outside of Kabul, I want to make sure to, to say both, right, because there are, there are Afghans all over Afghanistan who were in crisis. We were hearing despair. We were hearing fear. We were hearing desperation. Uh, 
we were hearing a lot of uncertainty about what was going to happen next. Uh, but, but, but really, everybody just wanted to, to figure out how to get out. I don't think people were willing to stick around to see what happened. The, the focus from everybody that we spoke to was, how do I get out? Yeah, Jane, let's talk about that day because President Biden maintains that the U.S. had to leave Afghanistan when it did after President Trump's agreement with the Taliban. But let's remind our listeners of how it really went down. And U.S. troops were supposed to leave by September 11th, you know, obviously the anniversary of the um, 9-11 attacks, the 20th anniversary. But the Taliban seized Kabul in August and then there was this rush for the exits. Exactly. The problem was that there hadn't, there, there was no way to process the amount of people who would have had a right to leave, who would have had a right to get to the states or apply for for these visas, in the amount of time. Uh, you know that that was what was most heartbreaking. Was you know for months and months, uh, many people, including us, had been had been reporting and researching and talking to people about the fact that tens of thousands of people had no idea what the status of their visa applications were. On, and, and that's really talking about battlefield partners, interpreters, those who had a very clear right to at least apply for those visas. They were all sort of stuck in um, in, in, in some, some sort of processing, which was really just a complete no man's land bureaucratically. Then you have all of their family members. But on top of that, with the absolute fall of the government, there wasn't really a plan from uh, from the White House uh, as to what to do with other people who had worked with, you know, diplomatic missions, NGOs, USAID funded projects. This was what happened as we saw Kabul fall, and thousands and thousands of people rushed to the airport. Was that the the essentially the State Department and the White House and the Pentagon they had to respond to what was happening rather than get ahead of it. There was no way to get ahead of it. I think what was most tragic was standing in the street. Uh, surrounded by these crowds of people asking for help was that everybody had the sense that they were about to be left behind and you knew that they were right. So, you know, whether or not you're talking to strangers who are there begging you for help or you were getting calls from former colleagues, journalists, you know, people who worked in the city who had known for years, they were all aware that soon these flights would stop. And so the panic just kept growing and growing and growing. And that's why people got to the airport. There was no system in the end. It utterly collapsed. Yeah, Joseph, there was wide agreement. It was time for the war to end. But, you know, you've argued, and obviously many others, that the way it was done was the problem here, that it didn't leave Afghans with a lot of dignity. I think that's right. And it, and it warrants some exploration how the U.S., who planned so meticulously for decades for war, could not plan just as meticulously for peace and for transition. And, and that's something that baffled most of us who had observed Afghanistan and U.S.-Afghan relations for decades. And I think that the president, you know, he had a lot of notice. There are people who reached out to him. There are groups like ours that tried to um, make sure to avert this this result as soon as he was elected. And yet, you know, for reasons that I think only history will tell, um, there was this rush and this lack of care in this transition that ultimately, you know, a lot of people would agree, threw away decades of um, investment, decades of goodwill, and decades of progress for the Afghan people, most importantly. And so the lack of planning that Jane mentions is exactly, is exactly right as, as the core cause of this catastrophe. 
Well, I mean, to your point, last month, a study by the nonpartisan research group More in Common found 22% of Americans felt the Afghan war made America safer. 48% felt the war was a mistake. I mean, how do you react to those numbers as we come up upon this anniversary? That's understandable. When you think about how many American families have had service members on multiple tours in Afghanistan, when you think about the thousands of lives lost, when you think about the financial investment that the U.S. made, it's natural to expect that level of fatigue. And I, I think you'd find very few people arguing that the U.S. should have stayed indefinitely. That actually wasn't good for Afghanistan either. And so the American public had a great point. I, I just wish that our government had been a little more thoughtful in how it executed on the desires of our population. Yeah. Jane, two weeks ago, a missile strike killed al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahe in Kabul. The Biden administration has used his death as an example of how the president's, quote, over-the-horizon strategy is working. When I ended our military mission in Afghanistan almost a year ago, I made the decision that after 20 years of war, the United States no longer needed thousands of boots on the ground in Afghanistan to protect America from terrorists who seek to do us harm. And I made a promise to the American people that we continue to conduct effective counterterrorism operations in Afghanistan and beyond. So, Jane, it's a double-edged sword here, right? It does show the U.S. is still able to go after threats in, in Afghanistan, but it also shows high-level terrorists are hanging out in downtown Kabul. Are, are we seeing al-Qaeda regrouping? I think that certainly you're seeing al-Qaeda able to move around more. I mean, they weren't just... He, it's highly, highly unlikable, unlikely that uh, Zawahiri was hiding in Kabul. He was hosted in Kabul in a very comfortable home. So you're right. On the one hand, yes, of course, you know, drone strikes are still a possibility and there must be some human assets on the ground there to be able to have so uh, accurately targeted him and not just taken out that whole house. There must have been someone watching him. But that does not mean that from an intelligence perspective, uh, America has either uh, willing partners on the ground that they can work with. So actually doing intelligence operations is kind of a stretch, I think, to argue that you can do operations as opposed to uh, targeted strikes. And, and secondly, yes, your point is absolutely right. It is a double-edged sword. Clearly, very, very powerful elements, likely the Haqqani uh, network, who have massive power in, in Afghanistan, uh, they, and in, within the, the current Taliban government, are hosting Al Qaeda leaders, so you know, essentially it, it's 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 not necessarily it's it's a complete change of of the situation on the ground for the for for Al Qaeda. On the one hand, they obviously felt comfortable and uh, secure enough to move around and be at the center of power, but on the other hand. Right you know, they are obviously exposed as well to these drone strikes. But does that mean we just go on with a kind of whack-a-mole approach to, right. to, to containing al-Qaeda there? Or engage. We'd be taking a longer view. So, Jane, let's pick up where we were talking about after al-Zwahiri's death. Is this an opportunity for the U.S. to engage with with the Taliban over counterterrorism? And maybe that kind of paves the way for, for a little bit greater cooperation? I think that really is the fundamental question right now. And it's not just a national security question. It's it's a it's really a an ethical question. You can't separate the two. It's it's impossible to deny that 
cooperation with the Taliban on purely national security measures, on implementing what was part of a deal, although that deal seems rather dead in the water now, um, that uh, that they would not allow groups like al-Qaeda to gain a foothold in Afghanistan and potentially strike abroad in, in the United States. So, of course, if there's an ability to deal with the Taliban and prevent strikes to to take out uh, major leadership, then, of course, that would be beneficial from a national security perspective. But I really think that Afghanistan represents more than almost any other other uh, foreign policy quandary for America, where the question is, you know, what does America want for its foreign policy? Does it want to secure national security interests at all costs, at all moral and ethical costs? Does that mean doing uh, deals with the Taliban uh, at, and, and disregarding their human rights abuses, disregarding the fact that this is a government that is the most repressive against women known on the planet right now. So, you know, if we do take it from the perspective of national security alone, does that mean this is America first light? Or do we try to, you know, walk a path whereby this is quid pro quo, where we're not going to work with you unless you start to, 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 to see how serious we are about things like women's rights? Yeah, well, let's talk about women and girls, Jane. Um, you and I have talked about, you know, obviously the Taliban have imposed many restrictions on women's freedoms as effectively erasing them from the workforce, girls above sixth grade, a ban from attending school in most parts of the country. But what can the U.S. do to force the Taliban's hand on women's issues? I think there's a possibility of targeted sanctions. You know, you don't have to collapse the Afghan economy to, to put pressure, you just need to put pressure in the right places and on the right people. You know, Afghan, the, the Taliban leadership want to be able to travel the world. They want to be able to have bank accounts. They want their families to be able to do these things as well. They want to be taken seriously. I think that targeted sanctions against individuals that are very clearly tied to uh, women's rights, the rights to go to school, the rights to to assembly, um, and and the right to even move around without a male guardian. I think that that you can you can connect that very clearly. I think also there are very subtle ways to force the Taliban to deal with women. We keep seeing images of diplomatic missions arriving in Kabul from NGOs, from the United Nations, from the World Food Program, from from different uh, nations. Send women, make them stand on the tarmac and shake hands with women, make them deal with women face to face, show them what being part of the international community is going to is going to entail. It, Joseph, this weekend, we saw these women marching for their rights um, in these protests that were just incredible. Some women are even going to school in secret. I mean, the resilience of these women in Afghanistan is, is truly remarkable but how successful are have these efforts been? And I know you've said we can't let the rest of the world off the hook here. I mean, what what should the international community be doing? At least I, th I think it's important to, to sort of set the table and really talk about what the situation is for Afghan girls and women, right? So Afghanistan, in Afghanistan right now, the economic crisis that we're, we're all talking about is having a disproportionate effect on girls and women. As Jane mentioned, some women can't travel more than 45 minutes away from their homes when, there are, when they are able to get out without a male escort. And we know about what's happening around education being shut down and women being driven out of the workforce, right? So that's not a sustainable place for the economy. In terms of what the international community can do, I think Jane's right on it. I think limiting the Taliban's ability to move is critical. I also think it's important for us to remember that this regime has patrons. 
this regime has the ability to survive because there are people su supporting it. And so engaging parties like Qatar, engaging Pakistan is going to be critical because there are channels of influence there. And the U.S. has levers as well beyond sanctions. Frankly, sanctions are a slippery slope. And while I agree that targeted sanctions on individuals can be effective, we've also seen how they can be ineffective because they were not adequate to prevent the Taliban from ascending. And so I think the international community has to figure out where those levers of power are. And I suspect they're going to be with this peop the people who helped the Taliban get into power and who flew them into Afghanistan on their Air Force planes and who continue to try to guide them. We just need to increase the pressure. We're going to add one more voice to the program. Bradley Hope is a producer for Cabo Falling, an eight-episode podcast by Project Brazen and PRX. Bradley, welcome to the show. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Here's an interview from the podcast. This is a conversation host Nelufar Hayudet had with 21-year-old activist and journalist who fled Afghanistan last year. Across the city, Oge, the Zan TV journalist, awoke the next morning on August the 15th and set out like it was any other day. She would go to her university first, where she was still finishing her studies, and then to her job at the station. My father told me don't go to work in university because today is, I think, not a good day for us. Then I said, Dad, no, everything is normal. So when I went to university, there was no classmates, there was no students. But on the streets, she saw a rush of people, all in a panic, trying to wrap their heads around the news. Oh, Taliban came, Taliban came, Taliban arrived to Kabul, and there was no taxis, no cars. Oge frantically called her colleagues, who told her they were rushing back home, and she should do the same. She started running to her house. I cried, and my father told me that, relax, relax, everything will be okay. Then I said, no, Dad, how it's possible? Like, country is gone, there is nothing. So the podcast includes over 40 interviews. Um, Bradley, you've been a foreign correspondent for a while. How is this working on this podcast different from, you know, kind of covering the news abroad? Well, you know, we had a lot of freedom because we're a kind of an independent company. So we just decided to do the project that we wanted to do. There was nobody kind of, there was no agenda other than what is the Afghan experience of this event? And we just set out with a few interviews at first and over time, interviewed uh, more than 40 people. And it was just really amazing. It was such a powerful way to connect to the story, to hear the experience from the Afghanistan perspective. Well, talk to us about some of the stories that, that really stood out to you. Well, you know, one of them, one of the first ones we came across was a relationship between a former kind of top CIA officer and his translator. Um, it was a, it's really a strong kind of fraternal bond. CIA officers are supposed to sort of abandon their translators. I mean, that's actually their, the, 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 the order given to them so that they don't have that emotional connection. But in this case, he kind of, um, did, did it anyway. And when, when things got really bad, he managed to get in touch and he, he sort of, walked him through the escape over WhatsApp, you know, remote controlling his family every every left and right turn and 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 luckily got them out. And and they're such good friends and, and almost like brothers now. Um, and there's so many stories, you know, a, a husband and a wife torn apart that was really painful to listen to. Um, and then some of these amazing stories, you know, you hear a lot about Kabul airport, but we have this one amazing story about the escape through Tajikistan. Um, a, a really amazing um, Israeli-American journalist essentially led 
the evacuation of more than 100 Afghans out of Tajikistan. And again, just over WhatsApp with volunteers. And the story is almost cinematic, the way that things actually worked out. Despite the tragedy of it, things did work out for some people. Joseph, I want to talk a little bit about the refugees. Um, about 76,000 Afghan refugees have been settled, resettled here in the U.S. You're working directly with these Afghans in the communities. What are you hearing? We're hearing a lot. We're hearing a lot of relief and gratitude that, that people were able to get out. That's certain. And that's something that doesn't escape anybody's minds. But a, a year in, after resources are drained, you know, the, the, mon- the money that folks got from the government is now gone. There's a lot of anxiety. Uh, anxiety on two major issues. First and foremost is legal status. Most of the, almost everybody that came into the country as part of this wave came under humanitarian parole. That's a temporary status. That's one or two years. And, and folks are really worried about what's going to happen to them, right? Because technically, when you fall out of status, that's when you start talking about having to go back. And so getting the legal status right and being able to adjust to permanent status is something people really worry about. And two is housing, at least. Housing in the U.S. is a crisis for all Americans. And so this group of 76,000 people who've come with nothing to their names, uh, trying to rebuild their lives, are really, really worried about having places to stay as a home base as they try to get jobs, get their kids in school, and rebuild themselves. We're looking back at the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan one year later. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Let's get back to our conversation. Here's another clip of Kabul falling. This time, host Nolofar Hadayat sits down with a couple separated by the fall of Afghanistan. Mohammed and Tara were newlyweds. They'd been married a few weeks before in a big ceremony in Kabul. She was just 19 and he was 26. Tara and her family lived in the U.S. and had green cards. They'd traveled to Afghanistan for the wedding. But Mohammed didn't have a green card or a U.S. visa. Without the proper documents, no amount of pleading would get him through the gate. Mohammed turned to Tara and told her to go to America without him, to live freely 7,000 miles away. There, in front of the gate, they took a final moment to say goodbye. They didn't know when they'd see each other again or if they'd ever have a chance to build the life they dreamed of. Tara couldn't stop crying. Mohammed was gutted too, but tried his best to comfort her. It was the worst feeling your life partner is leaving you. But you have to let her go because her life is in danger. He was a little stronger than me, but I was, you know, I was breaking down and crying in tears a lot. And he was just telling me, it's okay. That was the last words. That's okay, and everything will be all right, and you'll be here one day, inshallah. So, Bradley, Afghanistan spent 20 years under U.S. occupation, really. I mean, after decades of fighting the Taliban and the way we left, what what do you think America owes to those now living under a Taliban government? I think that, that the U.S. owes Afghans even more than we owe Ukrainians, for example. I mean, this is the majority of the population of Afghanistan was born after 9-11. And they were born in this era when ideas like freedom of speech and, and equal rights between men and women were 
were promulgated across the country, and then that dream has been sort of ripped from them. I think we have a lifelong obligation to Afghans in Afghanistan and in America, and they should be embraced, and their stories should be listened to so that we can better understand what their experience has been. Joseph, your family came to the U.S. from Afghanistan in the 80s, and you've talked before about how you feel this is the darkest time in the country's history in this kind of pervasive sense of pessimism that the Afghans are feeling. Tell us more about that. Yeah, Elise, I think it comes down to what, what Bradley was actually talking about. Afghanistan has right now one of the world's youngest populations. And in that young population, you have entrepreneurs, technologists, you know, future scientists, unlimited potential. And so as an Afghan-American who, who came at a different time, I look at that and I recognize how far and how quickly the country has fallen. And that's a very dark thing to accept because you see how far back we've now been set. And I'm not certain that, that my daughters are ever going to be able to visit Afghanistan. And they're young, right? They're five and three. But that's how bad things have gotten so quickly. And so in that way, it's, it's I think, the darkest time. And, and I'd add one more thing, which is to say that the world really has decided to move on. And it's never felt like that before, certainly not in the post 9-11 period. And so where is hope going to come from? Yeah, I mean, Hamid Karzai has talked, former president, about the brain drain and the potential of this young population. Cut short, Jane, it's it's a really complicated situation, right? I mean, the war is over. Now that the Taliban has taken over, there's no violence and there's relative calm. But at the same time, any hope of pluralism is gone. So, you know, America doesn't want to back the Taliban. But in order to help develop the country, you need to work with the government at least a little bit. I think looking forward, one of the biggest challenges is going to be trying to get the Taliban to effectively build a real government. You know, when you're in Kabul and you're, and, and you're, you're moving around, it doesn't really feel like it's run by the Taliban. It feels like it's still just sort of occupied by a militia. So getting a functioning government, I think one of the biggest failures and one of the biggest shocks for those of us who at least thought the Taliban might be pragmatic, is how uninclusive their government has been. You know, it's actually not that peaceful. You know, there, there, there are different groups who are, you know, they're not a massive threat to the Taliban, but they're able to make life difficult for them, the National Resistance Front and, and other fighting groups that, that can attack them. That's very much so something that they could help themselves with by creating something of a more inclusive government. Afghanistan is massively ethnically diverse. If they don't do that, their rule is 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 extremely tenuous. I would argue that long term, I mean, don't forget in the past, they only ruled Afghanistan for a handful of years. So their ability to hold on to power will involve will will, will be dependent on their ability to run a real government. And that's where looking forward, if you could find an imperfect but real government that you could work with, all is not necessarily lost. You know, when we look at women's rights and education, right. Those girls are still there. They're yeah, you still can't uneducate a population. You cannot undo that. Look at those women protesting in the streets. Right. And we talk to them on the phone Amazing. all the time. You know, they, this is not 1996, and they're not going away. Yeah, you can't turn back. Bradley, what do you hope people in the West come to understand about the Afghan war? It's, it's just a classic example of, you know, there is no such thing as a surgical intervention you know, I think there should be the, the the kind of definitive answer to that, to that, that idea in the future that you can go into a country and quickly make a few changes and leave. Um, there's always going to be this kind of intractable element to something like that. 
Jane, Afghanistan is called the graveyard of empires for a reason. I mean, as someone who's been covering the country in the Middle East for a while, what do you think happens next? I think what happens next is potential inroads into trying to deal with the Taliban, trying to help them form a functional government, trying to help them really or force them to respect human rights to some extent. Um, But I think the point was raised earlier here. It's really a regional wide problem as well. Pakistan, Iran, you know, Doha, Qatar, there's going to have to be more of a coalition of efforts. Joseph, the State Department says there are about 74,000 Afghan allies still waiting for that special immigrant visa. For those who have served alongside U.S. service members, they're potentially facing a years-long wait. Meanwhile, they're in danger of reprisal from the Taliban. And you have one piece of legislation that could help the Afghan Adjustment Act, which would grant permanent legal status to Afghan allies and improve that, you know, we call them the civs the civs process. Why is this bill significant and does it does it do enough? It's significant for three main reasons. One, it addresses this issue of uncertainty for the almost 80,000 American allies and friends who are here now in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces. So it, it gives them a pathway to permanent status, which is critical. The second way is it actually does require some more investment from the State Department and focus on the SIV program. And it expands it to include all of our allies, including, for example, units of um, tactical women who were in the armed forces who were critical to us. And the third reason is moral injury, Lise. One of the things that's happened is there's been the string of broken promises from America. And I can't think of a single piece of legislation or a single act that would be more meaningful at this juncture to repair some of that moral injury as a country for us to say that we're going to welcome all of these Afghans who served alongside our armed forces long-term and tell them this is home. This is where you belong and this is where you are welcome. Yeah, I mean, we always say no one left behind. Jane, I want to look forward and, and give people some hope. I mean, is there hope for Afghanistan? You know, things are looking really dark right now, but, but looking forward, um, is there anything to take some optimism from? It's It's a challenge, but I think that the most hopeful thing will have to be, unfortunately, modest. It'll have to be baby steps, you know, getting getting girls back into school, getting the economy uh, off the ground. These will all be really small incremental steps. I think it, it's encouraging that the aid agencies were able to keep so many people alive over the winter. We, you know, let's not forget, but in, in November, I was last there, the, we were heading into a winter where it was considered a potential serious famine. So the fact that the aid agencies are able to work there and the Taliban are not blocking them and they're not being attacked, in many ways, they're able to work better than they ever were because, of course, the Taliban attacked them for 20 years. So that's good. That 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 helps, um, you know, at, at least stop the humanitarian situation getting even more dire. But I think it's going to have to be tiny baby steps. And I think in terms of the world's attention, that isn't exactly a headline grabber. So in the coming years, as Afghanistan falls away from the headlines, I think it's going to be important to, to remember that the fight to, to for human dignity there goes on. Jane Ferguson, correspondent at PBS NewsHour, Joseph Azam, chairman of the Afghan American Foundation, and Bradley Hope, producer for the podcast Kabul Falling. I want to thank you all for joining us today. Today's producer was Arfi Getty. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Elise Labatt. Let's talk more soon. 
This is 1A. 